0: A haircut for Cyprus or a permanent wave? Today, Monday, March 25th. From Public Radio International, the BBC, World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman, a painful bailout deal for Cyprus. Its banking sector will be cut back, and rich depositors stand to lose significant amounts of money. This economist says people are numb.
1: People say this is the same like the experience we had in
0: 1974 with the war. And Cyprus isn't the only European Union country that's reeling. Bulgaria is also experiencing a wave of political and economic discontent.
2: There's an incredible frustration with democracy and the feeling that all that elections do is bring into power a new group of political elites that are going to steal from the people.
0: News is next. MRI's
3: The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's been a crazy week for bank customers in Cyprus. But the good news today is that a banking collapse on the Mediterranean island has been avoided. The bad news... The new $13 billion bailout deal with the European Union involves significant pain for Cypriots. A major bank will be shut down, another will be restructured, and anybody with more than 100,000 euros in those banks is going to help pay for the deal. Stavros Zenios is a professor of finance at the University of Cyprus in Nicosia. He gives us the broad strokes of this new plan.
1: The basic outline is that uh, the bank depositors will be bailed in One of the banks, the second biggest bank of the country, like the popular bank, uh, will go into resolution, which means all the secure deposits up to an amount of 100,000 euro, they will be transferred to Bank of Cyprus and they are secure. Anything over that amount will be frozen until the bank's assets are sold and people gradually will get back their money. So basically this is a... Controlled bankruptcy. For Bank of Cyprus, the major bank on the island, this bank will be recapitalized, but depositors over the 100,000 limit will get a haircut. At uh, this point, it's not clear how big the haircut will be. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are talks of about uh,
0: 30%. Yeah, you say step in the right direction, but what is a haircut really when you're talking Cyprus's two biggest banks? I mean, this is more like a permanent wave.
1: Well, they will get one time cut on the deposits. It is a big impact on the country's economy. The uncertainty and the turmoil has essentially dealt a very strong blow to the country's offshore business, especially financial services, from which uh, there is concern that it will take a very long time for the country to recover. So our Eurogroup has addressed the banking problem, But in the meantime, the economic activity of the country has been dealt a very strong
0: blow. I mean, the headline sounds like this is going to be a loss for some account holders. And with Cyprus's two leading banks, the target of this, how are people with healthy deposits reacting?
1: Well, the situation on the ground here is numbness. People say this is the same like the experience we had in 1974 with the war. It's still too early to understand the implications of this decision. For example, gradually realize that the bank that's going into resolution which will create unemployment problems. Also, it had its pension fund in this very same bank, which means if the bank goes into resolution, they will not get their money back, or it will be a long time
0: until they get the money back. Are you saying that pensions for a lot of people are going to dry up as well?
1: The pensions that were invested in popular bank, they will be frozen until the bank is resolved and nobody knows how long this process will take.
0: And if banks that uh, don't resolve their problems, that means people who have pensions won't ever get them?
1: Anything over 100,000, the answer is yes. People will never get them. This is now the the implications of this decision. What does this really mean for the real economy? We had two banks that were all the banking activity of the country. So you understand when one of them is going into resolution. And and these banks uh, had eight times the GDP of the country in terms of liabilities.
0: So what's been the reaction from the street? People who don't have that much money.
1: Well, people who don't have that much money, they are worried now about unemployment. Unemployment Cyprus had been uh, the highest we had for since the establishment of the republic. It's, over, it's about 12%. Usually, we had 3 to 4% unemployment. Now, with this big blow to the financial services sector, that was 25% of the economic activity of the country, this has another negative impulse on the job creation. So there is a lot of uncertainty. The country is going to uncharted territory. We came very close to the cliff of dropping out of the euro. So even if we manage to pull back from this uh, disastrous event, the situation is not uh,
0: pretty. Stavros Zenios, professor of finance at the University of Cyprus in Nicosia. Good to speak with you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Have a good day. The European Union drove a pretty tough bargain on this bailout deal, and as a result, some bank customers in Cyprus are having to swallow some pretty bitter medicine. Among the EU officials who negotiated the deal was European Council President Herman Van Rompuy. Earlier, I spoke with a senior advisor, Richard Corbett, and Corbett pointed out that the idea of taxing depositors' bank accounts didn't come from the EU, but from politicians in Cyprus itself.
4: Essentially, it's just up to the country concerned to decide how it wants to raise its share of the money. If Cyprus is, re- is receiving a bailout, it's receiving a loan from other Eurozone countries of a substantial amount. It's worth well over half of Cyprus's GDP, let's not forget. In return, it also has to contribute something um, in order to write down debt levels from an unsustainable level. Um, if the Cypriot government's chooses to raise that money in this way rather than that way, it's not really up to other Eurozone countries to say to them, no, you have to do it this way, or at least there was a reluctance to. And if the Cypriot government was saying, no, this is the way we want to do it, well, of course, the others can make it clear that that's not really their preference, but they were, in the initial deal, a little bit reluctant to, to, uh, to tell the Cypriot government what to do. Of course,
0: that's, that's quite normal. Given the increased worries now in Cyprus, uh, in retrospect, do you think uh, those European Union finance ministers perhaps should have pushed harder to veto the plan last week? So all this could have been avoided.
4: Well, it's a fair point to debate. But, of course, it's natural that um – when you're negotiating with a country um, and it's expected to make a contribution, it is in the first instance up to that country to make proposals about how it wants to raise its own contribution internally. Um, it, it, you, you don't start off with the assumption that you're going to tell it what to do. Uh,
0: Richard Corbett, do you, do you think the Cyprus plan might be applied to the next Cyprus on the EU map?
4: Well, Cyprus is very specific and peculiar in terms of the, the nature of, uh, of its banking sector in particular. So I don't think the solutions found there can be taken as any precedent uh, for any other country. Indeed, if you look at all the deals that have been made for different countries, they've been tailor-made according to the situation.
0: Richard Corbett, a member of the Cabinet to European Council President Herman von Rompuy, thanks for your time. Thank you. Find more of our ongoing coverage of the fiscal crisis in Cyprus, including a recent interview on what Russia has at stake there. That's all at theworld.org. When Bulgaria joined the European Union in 2007, many people thought prosperity was just around the corner, but it hasn't worked out that way. Poverty is on the rise in Bulgaria. Pensions have shriveled and costs for basic services like electricity have skyrocketed in recent years. And recently, old and young alike have taken to the streets to protest. Demonstrators have become so desperate that in recent weeks, six Bulgarian protesters have set themselves on fire. Author Kristin Godsey has just returned from Bulgaria. She was on a street in the capital Sofia on March 13th when one protester decided to pay the ultimate price.
2: I essentially smelled it. There were ambulances, and obviously the man was rushed immediately to the emergency room. So it was uh, very fast. You know, the technology here of setting oneself alight means dumping gasoline on your head and then just lighting a match. And so it happens very quickly.
0: I, I doubt there's a simple answer to this question, Kristen, but what's the closest we have to an explanation of why so many Bulgarians are setting themselves on fire?
2: When we have words from them, if they're still conscious in the um, emergency room, they tell the doctors that they uh, they have set themselves on fire for despair. One man said he couldn't afford to feed his child. Another man was the father of five and had been unemployed for a very long time. So these are incredibly desperate people. And I think that they they hope maybe that by doing this, Act that that something in their country will change, and you know in the future they may be considered these these martyrs for this cause of of trying to figure out a way out of the mire. Bulgaria is such a poor country; the average wage is around five hundred dollars a month. This is a EU member. There were massive protests in February over electricity bills. Uh, the the cost of these electricity bills exceeded many people's incomes and that actually led to the fall of the Bulgarian government on February 20th and the government has declared snap elections for May 12th however many Bulgarians don't don't believe that the democratic process is actually going to solve their problems and so i believe that these self-immolations are a sign of protest of frustration at what many people see as a hopeless situation.
0: Tell me about those protests. Who was out there, middle-class people or kind of city people? I mean, who do they represent?
2: These protests were across Bulgaria. And as I said, they had the effect of bringing down the government. After they turned violent, the prime minister decided he didn't want blood on his hands and he and his cabinet resigned. Mm.
0: Tell us uh, about some of the things the protesters told you. What, What were they saying?
2: So some of them very clearly had a sense that democracy could be fixed. But I have to say there were many people I spoke to who were very nostalgic for a former um, regime in Bulgaria because it was a regime that met people's needs. And there's an incredible frustration with democracy and the feeling that. All that elections do is bring into power a new group of political elites that are going to steal from the people. So I heard optimism and I also heard extreme pessimism and a lot of just frustration.
0: Extreme pessimism is one thing, but self-immolation, I mean, that represents a a really deep-seated disgust, anger and, and depression even.
2: These self-immolations are clearly referencing the Buddhist monks who set themselves on fire during the Vietnam War— The street vendor in Tunisia who set himself on fire at the beginning of the Arab Spring. Also, Plamen Goranov, the young man, 36 year old artist who set himself on fire in Varna on February 20th, he's been called the Bulgarian Jan Polish in reference to the young man who set himself on fire after the Prague Spring in Mm -hmm. protest of the Soviet invasion.
0: I mean, the irresistible analogy which you pointed out is Tunisia, where uh, that street vendor, Mohamed Bouazizi, set himself on fire in December 2010 becoming a catalyst for the Tunisian revolution, not to mention other revolutions around the Arab world. Is there any way of knowing, though, whether these self-immolations in Bulgaria would lead to a larger social movement?
2: You know, one of the things about the Arab Spring is that the United States and some Western governments push for regime change. They did this in Eastern Europe with the communist governments. They've clearly done this in the Middle East with these dictators. But there's a a question about what comes next. I mean, just because you have elections doesn't necessarily mean that life is better for the average uh, man or woman. And I think that what's happening in Bulgaria now, what you're seeing is a reaction that democracy without the real voice of the people and democracy without some kind of economic stability and growth, it really doesn't work very well. And, and that's why I believe that there's a possibility that we could see some really interesting things happening in Bulgaria in the next months before the election.
0: You know, we've been looking at, at Cyprus, uh, the whole world's been looking at Cyprus, yes. seeing crisis in the face of potential collapse. I mean, the, the analogies are, are kind of similar. What, what's happening in Bulgaria in terms of that? Are they feeling the pain?
2: I think across the periphery of Europe, particularly in these poorer European Union countries, there's a real sense of of crisis, of financial crisis and of political crisis. I think the EU is very nervous. I think we should be watching Cyprus and Greece and Bulgaria very carefully in the next months because these things could really boil over and have some really unfortunate, maybe unintended consequences, maybe positive consequences, but also potentially very negative consequences.
0: Kristen Godsey has just returned from Bulgaria, where she spoke with protesters there about recent self-immolations. Godsey teaches at Bowdoin College. Her latest book is Lost in Transition, Ethnographies of Everyday Life After Communism. Kristen, thanks for your thoughts.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're listening to The World on PRI Public Radio International.
3: The world is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation. Searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10 mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes application and information available at medtronic.com/globalheroes.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is the world. Here's a question that underlies a lot of environmental regulation: Who should pay to clean up pollution? If a power plant dirties the air or a chemical company poisons a river, should society be left to bear the cost? The people of Mexico are now asking these questions when it comes to an especially sticky matter. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program Nova has a story. Francisco Madero Street is a busy
5: pedestrian thoroughfare in the heart of Mexico City. At one end is the Metropolitan Cathedral... At a cross street, a couple of cops keep the stream of tourists and locals safe from traffic. There's so much going on that it's easy to overlook what's right beneath your feet. The beige pavement is freckled with black spots the size of coins.
3: Todas esas pequeñas manchas negras
5: son all these little black dots are pieces of chewing gum stuck to the ground, says Ricardo Haral Fernandez. He oversees the maintenance of public space in the city center. Today his team's got a section of the street cordoned off. Oscar Javier Cadena Mendoza uses a manual counter to tally the number of gum spots here. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro,
1: cinco, seis,
5: he counts for almost five minutes. 280 pieces of gum in an area about the size of two parking spaces. The last time they counted along this entire street, which stretches for several blocks, there were 80,000 pieces of gum. And Haral Fernández has launched an all-out cleaning offensive. This is the machine. He points to a small metal box connected to a long hose with a brush on one end. The hose ejects steam and a special cleaning fluid. You rub the brush on a gum spot. Ten seconds, and disappear. The gum literally dissolves. But even a crew of ten people working full-time isn't enough to keep up with all the gum accumulating on the streets. And this is an expensive undertaking. It costs three times as much to clean up a piece of gum as it does to buy it in the first place. In other words, those sticks of gum are a bigger drain on the government's budget than on the wallets of the gum-chewers themselves.
4: No es justo que subsidiando
5: un producto que contamina. It's not fair for us to be subsidizing this kind of pollution, says Juan Manuel Díaz francos He's a congressman from the eastern state of Veracruz. He says that gum on the streets and in the parks and plazas is a problem across Mexico. Now, one solution would be to enforce existing laws against littering. But Díaz francos says it's too difficult to catch gum throwers in the act. So he's got what he thinks is a more practical solution a gum tax. He says, I know it's not very popular for a congressman to propose taxes, but my first priority is Mexico. Diaz-Francos' tax would raise the price of each piece of gum from about four U.S. cents to six. And he says the money, a total of $210 million each year, would be used for gum cleanup. Diaz-Franco says his tax will be voted on by Congress later this year, and he expects it'll pass easily because congressmen from all parties have signed on in support. Now, a gum tax might seem extreme or silly, but it's consistent with a serious and longstanding concept.
0: It does roughly correspond to something called the polluter pays principle, which states that polluters should be responsible for the damages that their
3: activities impose on others.
5: Kathy Segerson is an economist at the University of Connecticut. She says polluters pollute because it's easier and cheaper to do so. For instance, it's a lot less expensive for a power plant to belch out dirty smoke than to install scrubbers. It's society that bears the costs of the air pollution in the form of acid rain or asthma, not the power company. And that means, she says, that to protect the environment, the government can force polluters to clean up their act, say, by putting scrubbers on smokestacks, or it can make polluters pay the cost of their dirty ways. And one way to do that is with taxes.
0: There are a number of situations that are parallel to the gum situation in terms of proposed remedies.
5: For instance, automobile tires. They're often disposed of improperly in vacant lots and on the side of the road. So some U.S. states charge a tax on new tires.
0: The magnitude of the tax is not sufficiently large to probably have any impact on the purchase of tires, But it does raise revenue, which is then used, specifically targeted toward the management of disposal of tires. But even if
5: a tax makes sense academically, it's ultimately politics that determines how acceptable it is as a form of environmental regulation. Back on the street in Mexico City, some passers-by say they think the gum tax is a good idea. (laughs) But others disagree. Like Citlali Barrio Orozco, she's 26 and says she chews gum pretty much every day. She says, I don't consider it fair to pay a tax on cleaning up gum that I haven't even thrown on the street. It's absurd, she says. They're better off doing something to prevent people from littering in the first place. For Nova and the
0: World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Mexico City. We've got before and after pictures of the gum-laden streets in Mexico City at theworld.org. And follow our link to Nova's Planet Earth page for more stories about efforts to protect the global environment. Later in the program, we'll hear about an aviation pioneer from Bolivia and why his name is in the news right now. That story also has a connection to the 19th century War of the Pacific. And that is the starting point for today's GeoQuiz. <music> The War of the Pacific, it was a conflict that started in 1879, lasted four years. It involved Bolivia, Chile, and Peru. At the time, Bolivia had a Pacific coastline like its neighbors, Chile and Peru. But since the war, Bolivia has been a landlocked nation. Now, the War in the Pacific is also known by two other names. They refer to some of the natural resources that the three South American nations were fighting over. Any idea what they are? Tell you what, you only have to name one to be a GeoQuiz winner today. We'll have both answers later in the program, so stay with us. Before the newscast, just wanted to share this with you. It's an extremely sensitive time in India when it comes to violence against women. Just last week, India adopted a new law aimed at protecting women against sexual violence after that horrific gang rape and murder there in December. So it's not surprising that a series of ads for Ford cars in India had people up in arms, and here's why. One of the ads showed three women bound and gagged in the trunk of an Indian compact, the Ford Figo. In the driver's seat, a smiling former Italian prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, alongside the slogan, Leave your worries behind with the Figo's extra-large boot. Yep, today Ford apologized for the ads saying they were contrary to the standards of professionalism and decency within Ford. But Ford also says the ads were never used commercially. And a spokeswoman says it's not clear anyone at Ford had actually seen or approved the ads before they appeared on websites showing creative advertising around the world. More news coming up on PRI Public Radio International.
3: The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund.
0: I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, figuring out the meaning of the word amnesty in the immigration debate.
6: When people have to pay so much money, because they're going to be huge fees. When you have to go to class, when you have to learn the language, that is fine. But the thing is that don't call it amnesty. It is not amnesty.
3: PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Done your taxes yet? Yep, everyone's got the IRS on the brain this time of year. Even, and this may surprise you, even undocumented immigrants... Many of them pay taxes regularly, despite their status. This year, though, the undocumented may be feeling extra anxious about taxes. That's because of all the talk about a pathway to citizenship for illegal immigrants. Such a pathway would almost certainly require applicants to pay years of back taxes and penalties. That could prove expensive for some, as we hear from Feet and Two Worlds reporter Aurora Amandral in New York.
7: Under the number 7 train in Queens, New York, shops line the streets catering to immigrants. A bakery has an ATM that makes deposits straight to accounts in Mexico. An internet cafe ships packages to Colombia and offers Indian eyebrow threading. But who's especially busy right now? Tax preparers, especially those catering to immigrants. To meet demand, the city's food bank is running a free tax preparation service in the basement of a Greek Orthodox church. Hang around enough, and you'll notice plenty of people, more growing every year, using an individual taxpayer identification number, or ITIN, to file. It's an alternative ID that many undocumented immigrants use for taxes. If you don't have papers, the IRS will assign you an ITIN. And they won't pass information about your legal status to immigration officials. The IRS says their job is to collect.
8: Es su copia federal. Es para ustedes.
7: Oscar and Marcella are here at the church for tax help. They're a couple from Mexico and request using only their first names because they're undocumented. Marcella raises their two young kids while Oscar works as a busboy. Oscar shows his item to file his taxes. He also has a W-2 from his employer, a Manhattan restaurant. To get hired in on the books, Oscar used a fake social security number. The restaurant never verified it and withholds taxes, just like any other W-2. Why play by the rules? Oscar says he sees other benefits to paying
9: taxes. He's
7: hoping that showing an effort to file might help him earn legal status one day, because he sees that Americans take taxes seriously. It's just something you have to do, he says. Oscar earned so little last year that he got a refund. He also qualified for a child tax credit, which is the only tax credit available to undocumented immigrants. And then there's the undocumented workers who don't have a social security number like Oscar and only use an ITIN to file. They're cash earners working under the table. To pay taxes, they estimate their income and get charged a self-employment tax, which runs pretty high. Herman Hedda runs the food bank's tax prep services. He says these cash earners are essentially self-employed.
10: Even though in most cases they're working for your local grocery store or or your local restaurant, they're they're paying their self-employment taxes.
7: They're dishwashers, delivery guys, domestic workers, and flower sellers. They work regular jobs but pay taxes like self-employed people. And since their employer hasn't withheld taxes for them, these earners pay up in one lump sum. And their extra self-employment tax adds up to twice what W-2 employees pay.
5: And not only paying, but they're paying double.
7: Low-wage cash earners may face steep financial burdens if paying back taxes is required for legalization. Both President Obama and Republicans generally agree on the tax prerequisite. But critics say undocumented immigrants have paid millions in taxes, and more will be spent on hunting down tax histories than what's collected from missing payments. Also, Valeria Treves of the New Immigrant Community Empowerment in Queens says this about the idea of, quote, earned citizenship. This is a very charged term that really means putting immigrants through a lot a lot a lot of hoops in order to be able to access those immigration benefits she says that many immigrants accept that legalization won't be free but she adds that paying back taxes and fines may be too high for people making two or four hundred dollars a week it's likely that people will work even harder than they do now to pull the money together that said a lot of people are just not going to be able to meet those payment requirements if immigrants can't afford it they'll remain in the shadows We have to ask ourselves, are we going to have an immigration reform that is really going to bring the 11 million undocumented immigrants, immigrant workers and immigrant families out of the shadows? Or are we going to have a reform that is really just a political move to say that we got something passed this year? Oscar is paying his taxes this year, but he's been in the U.S. for 10 years. For some of those years, he was only paid in cash and didn't know about filing
1: taxes.
7: So Oscar and his wife are now saving up to pay back what they think they might owe. If it's too much, it might convince the couple and other immigrants like them not to come forward. For The World, I'm Aurora Almendral in New York.
0: Aurora's report comes to us via Feet in Two Worlds, a project that brings the work of immigrant journalists to public radio. Ultimately, the immigration reform debate revolves around a key question. Is there a path to legal status for the estimated 11 million illegal immigrants living in the U.S.? It'll be tough to sort out, especially since lawmakers can't even agree on a term for the process. The world's Jason Margolis has more from the U.S.-Mexico border in southeast Texas. The Merriam-Webster
8: Dictionary defines the word amnesty as an act by which pardon is granted to a large group of individuals. Many immigrant rights activists say that's not the right word for what's being talked about today.
6: Hmm. Amnesty, um, we don't say amnesty because it's not amnesty.
8: Juanita Valdez-Cox has helped low-income Mexican immigrants for three decades. She's now in San Juan, Texas, near the Rio Grande River. When President Reagan granted the last amnesty in 1986, three million undocumented immigrants were given legal status just by registering with the government. Valdez-Cox says that's not what's being offered today.
6: What is being talked about is totally not amnesty. When people have to pay so much money because they're going to be huge fees for having broken the law and coming in illegally. When you have to go to class, when you have to uh, learn the language, when you have to, that is fine. But the thing is that don't call it amnesty. It is not amnesty. It's earned. You have to work for it. You have to pay for it. It's an earned legalization program.
8: Just down the road in Alamo, Texas, Michael Seifert works as the coordinator of the Rio Grande Valley Equal Voice Network. He says the term amnesty is more commonly used for criminals
3: and former dictators. And then we use that same word to talk about, oh, we're giving amnesty to the 11 million people who were brave enough, who were responsible enough, who were bright enough to come to this country and, and make a living and create a living and create neighborhoods.
10: Well, um,
3: what term would you prefer I would say legalize them, yeah. Regularize their status.
10: Regularization, normalization, I mean, almost like you're stretching not to say the obvious word that everybody uses.
3: Mark Krikorian
8: is the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies, which favors tighter controls on immigration. He says those other terms are fine to use as well, but...
10: Amnesty was the word that was used for legalizing illegal immigrants for a long time and still is. It's simply a standard word for the process of letting those who are out of legal immigration status get right with the law.
8: Krikorian says surveys have found that the term amnesty has a negative connotation. It can sound like undocumented immigrants are getting something for nothing. And so Krikorian says those in favor of an amnesty avoid using the word.
10: People really, really didn't like the word amnesty and needed some euphemism in order to be fooled into supporting it.
8: A few weeks ago, President Obama delivered a 25-minute speech about comprehensive immigration reform. He never used the term amnesty or legalization.
10: For comprehensive immigration reform to
0: work, it must be clear from the outset that there is a pathway to citizenship.
8: But just because the president isn't saying it, That doesn't mean the word amnesty won't be used a lot in the coming months. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, San Juan, Texas.
0: And we have more on immigration and language in the latest World in Words podcast. Check that out at theworld.org. When Idlewild Airport in New York City became Kennedy Airport years ago... No one seemed to complain, and yet in the Bolivian city of Oruro, a proposal to rename the local airport sparked a general strike that paralyzed the city and blocked key highways. Its plan would change the airport's name in honor of Evo Morales, Bolivia's president. It's currently called the Juan Mendoza Airport, named after Bolivia's aviation pioneer. Yeah, I didn't know who he is either, but if he's worth striking over, then maybe I should. My colleague Jonathan Dyer is a self-confessed aviation geek, and he's been doing some digging. Jonathan, what have you found?
10: Well, at first I googled Juan Mendoza and found a Mexican actor and folk singer big in the 1960s. Realized <laughs> that probably wasn't what I was looking for. So I had to do some further digging and found out that he was Bolivia's first Pilot. He was from Ouroro, which is about 120 miles southeast of the capital, La Paz. He was born in 1893. Um, when he was eight years old, he first saw hot air balloons and thought, this is what I want to do. I want to fly. So he had a passion for flying. Uh, in 1916, when he was 24 years old, he got funding from his local pro-flying club. They had these clubs that would be in support of aviation, even though they didn't have any flyers or right. planes. And they sent him to Argentina to learn how to fly. He was down there for four months. In that time he did ninety flights apparently, and in July nineteen sixteen he got his pilot's license. we in fact we're gonna put a photo of it on the world at so you can see it for yourself. He's a dapper chap, little little old for his years, I'd say, but mm. you know, but nevertheless, it's there. So he then came back to Bolivia and he attempted to set up a civilian flight school. That didn't work. Not clear why. My hunch is because he didn't have a plane. that would
0: be a possible reason it
10: would, so the municipality gave him more money and he went back down to Argentina again and he bought a plane, which he put on a train which he then took back to Bolivia, accounts differ maybe the train broke down, the plane might have broken down as well, anyway he finally got his plane off the train and he did his first flight on November 10th, 1921 he was the first Bolivian to fly in Bolivia he then did a second flight where he flew back to Aurora, where he was greeted as a hero, a local hero and a national hero.
0: Wow. So kind of the Charles Lindbergh of of, of Bolivia and and that plane. Uh, tell me more about that plane, because uh, its name takes the story in a different tangent. It does indeed. It was a, a Fiat
10: biplane, and he gave the plane a name, and it was called Cobija. Which Cobija. Was Cobija named after an important Bolivian port city. Bolivian port city, but Bolivia is a landlocked country. Ah, but it wasn't in the 1800s. In the 1800s, Bolivia had a coast, and Cobija was an important port. It was destroyed by an earthquake in 1865. It was revived when they discovered mineral deposits nearby. And then came the War of the Pacific.
0: And the War of the Pacific, in a roundabout way, takes us to the answer to today's GeoQuiz.
10: It does. So the War of the Pacific, in which Bolivia lost its coastline to Chile, happened when Chile invaded because it wanted two things that Bolivia had. And those two things are the alternative names for the War of the Pacific, the Guano War and the Saltpeter War. They invaded Bolivia for bird poop and saltpeter, for fertilizer and explosives.
0: Found both in guano. Incredible story. Uh, Well, thanks for the history lesson, Jonathan. It was great stuff. Thanks. It was a treat for me, too. A little musical coda now before the break. From the very first notes of this 2003 CD, I knew it was going to be great. Lagrimas Negras, or Black Tears, features the duo of Bebo and Cigala. That would be Spanish flamenco singer Diego El Cigala, And the Bebo is Cuban piano legend Babel Valdez. Bebo was in his 80s when he recorded it, but his touch on the ivories was that of a nimble younger player. We want to take a few minutes to remember Bebo Valdez, who died last Friday. If you've ever seen the wonderful music documentary Calle 54, you've seen Bebo Valdez in one of his finest moments with his son, Chucho. Chucho Valdez is also a virtuoso pianist, more Latin jazzy though. Bebo the father had led two important Cuban big bands, but he was best associated with Cuban piano bars and musical styles like filin and boleros, slow dancing music. When Chucho and Bebo met for their scene in Calle 54, they hadn't seen each other in years. Chucho had remained in Cuba while Bebo went into exile after the revolution in the late 50s. He finally settled in Stockholm and never returned to Cuba. In the film, Bebo and Chucho hug, they exchange a few bits of news, and then they sit down to play two pianos facing each other. This is father and son conversing on keyboards. It's magical. It's magical. Three years after Calle 54 and after Bebo and Cigala recorded their album, Lagrimas Negras, I interviewed Bebo Valdez. He didn't want to do it in English, Spanish only. But when the subject of Cuba came up, he got agitated and wanted me to really understand his position about his native island. 26 October. Tomorrow is 43 years left Cuba. Nearly half a century the date Bebo Valdez left Cuba and the regime of Fidel Castro was embossed on his mental calendar. He despised the Castro government so much, he told me, he refused to live there. I said to myself, I, I never come back to Cuba.
1: I want to see these program's will half is
0: finished. He said as long as Fidel Castro was alive, he wouldn't return to Cuba. So when the Bebo Cigala Piano Flamenco Project went on tour to Cuba, Bebo didn't go. I happened to be in Havana when Elf Sigala played there, and the pianist that night? Bebo's son, Chucho. It was an incredible concert at the Karl Marx Theater in the Cuban capital, but it just did not have the Bebo touch that made Lagrimas Negras a Grammy winner, an earthy flamenco imprint on the music, combined with that classy piano bar of Bebo Valdez. Bebo Valdez died last Friday in Sweden at the age of 94. ¶¶ This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We heard earlier about the bailout deal to save Cyprus from a banking collapse. The banks in Spain were similarly rescued last year. That hasn't stopped Spanish banks from evicting homeowners who fall behind on payments, though. That's still a hallmark of the ongoing economic crisis there. Spanish citizens groups are intensifying their protests in response. One recent tactic, literally knocking on the front doors of government officials. The world's Jerry Haddon has a story.
11: Imagine you're at dinner. You hear some yelling outside. You look out the window to see an angry crowd at your door. This recent protest is in Valencia, right outside the home of a member of parliament. About 100 people are protesting the government's failure to rein in evictions, even as Spanish banks got rescued to the tune of 40 billion euros. According to the Spanish human rights group Platform of People Affected by Evictions, Marching down Main Street isn't getting the job done. A woman with a megaphone says our host doesn't want to receive us, but we have a right to talk to her, to know what's going on, just as the European Court of Justice said. The current eviction laws are illegal, and our politicians must understand this. What the court said is that Spain has to allow judges to halt evictions if the judge thinks the mortgage contract contains unfair clauses or terms that weren't properly explained to the homebuyer. Currently, judges cannot stay evictions. Ya, años, y... Spain's Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy said just after the court's ruling that his government would bring the country's laws into line. In fact, Spain's parliament is already drafting new legislation that could offer protection to some of Spain's most desperate homeowners. But some of the measures protesters most want are off the table, the government says. For example, being able to restructure mortgages or not having a person's debt passed on to his or her children. Hence the doorstep protests. For their part, the politicians targeted say their rights are being violated. Cristina Cifuentes is the federal government's representative no. in Madrid. No. No. She doesn't think the right no. to protest, no. even if the cause is justified, means you can personally harass individual leaders. The government is considering charging doorstep protesters with harassment or modifying laws to make home protests illegal. In the meantime, evictions continue, despite a voluntary pledge from banks to go easy on folks who fall behind on payments. And suicides linked to evictions continue, too. The latest happened two weeks ago. And while health experts agree that suicides usually involve multiple causes being evicted, especially during an economic crisis— can deepen a person's anxiety or depression. For The World, I'm Cherry Haddon in Barcelona.
0: Finally today, we meet a musician from Haiti named Becken. Many Haitians say no one can capture tragedy the way he can, and there's been a lot of tragedy in Haiti, especially since the earthquake that devastated much of the nation three years ago. Reporter Susana Ferreira caught up with Becken in Port-au-Prince.
9: They call him maestro or the artist, but to his fans, jean Prosper Dauphin is known simply as Beckin. Wow. Beckin was born 57 years ago in the Carrefour section of Port-au-Prince. After the devastating earthquake of January 2010, like more than a million other Haitians, he found himself homeless, living in a tent camp in a public square. And it was then when so many Haitians found themselves at the lowest point they'd ever felt that people rediscovered the sorrowful music of Beckin.
4: Oh music, music music melancholy. Oh my music is melancholy.
9: Yeah, jazz, blues,
8: there's
4: jazz, there's blues, yeah, kanta, y-
10: sentimental y- ballads, y- love songs.
8: Okay. But me, I'm a melancholy artist. It inspires sadness.
9: After more than a year of living under a tarp that leaked when it rained and roasted him in the summer. Beckin moved with his partner and young daughter into Jalousie, a dense neighborhood with tiny concrete houses and shacks stacked impossibly tightly together on a hillside. Here he's a regular fixture. People call out his name when they see his black Suzuki SUV, his long blue crutch, and one legged strut. Beckin lost his right leg at the age of 12 in what he calls an accident, but is more a horrific crime.
8: If I start talking about the accident, this interview will never finish. There's a lot of history. It's a very long story. Very long.
9: It was the stigma and pain of the incident that made him pick up a guitar and begin singing his particular brand of Haitian blues. He sometimes gives different explanations for how he lost his leg, but here's one version. One day, after a disagreement between Beckon's father and some co-workers, they resolved to track him down and slice off his leg in retaliation. When they couldn't find the dad, they grabbed the son instead.
4: They found me, a son
10: my father loved very much.
9: Even today, he gets emotional speaking about it. Many of his songs stem from this, reflecting a profound, misunderstood and undeserved pain. He says he gets his voice from his father, a peasant who used to sing on his way to work in the fields. 2013 marks Becken's 39th year as a musician. And his return to recording new material after more than a decade of silence. He says it was a series of political crises that forced him to be quiet all those years, and that if he hadn't kept quiet, he wouldn't still be alive. But he was unseen for so long that people began to wonder where was Beckon? Was he dead? Had he run away to Miami? He wrote and recorded a new album called Where Have You Been as a response. The album is either his comeback or his swan song, which one depends on his mood at any given moment. Chris Donahue, a record producer from Nashville who worked on the album, says Becken's music transcends language, that even people who don't understand a word of Creole can feel what he's saying.
8: What you hear in his voice, the passion and the intensity and the fire and the tragedy, you don't need to speak Creole. All of those things are communicated to the listener. Every person I play, even these rough little snippets of his music for, instantly get it.
9: Beckin has already toured North America and Europe with his music, and he hopes to travel and perform again when this album is released later this year. He would love to leave his cramped, noisy home in Jalousie. But while he's famous across the island, Becken hasn't yet made it in that way. God gave me a gift. He gave me a guitar. I play, I sing, I travel. Maybe if I had two legs, I wouldn't be able to do that. And maybe I don't have money, Becken says. But I'm proud. For the world... I'm Susanna Ferreira in Port-au-Prince.
0: You can see and hear Becca and tell more of his story from Haiti. We have an exclusive video at theworld.org. That's all for us today from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to... Is supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund.
11: PRI Public Radio International.